0: Welcome along to the Carp Angler Chronicles podcast. In this episode, we join Julian Cundiff on a journey through the 80s. Now, Julian is obviously someone who's been in the limelight for many, many years when it comes to carp fishing media. So when we got Julian on, we wanted to do something a little bit different that he hasn't done before. What we're going to bring you is a two-parter, as I said, In this episode, we're going to wander through the 80s with Julian. He's going to go into detail about how he got into carp fishing, his experiences along the way, who he met, who was influential on him, how he was tackling the different waters in the 80s. Then for a part two, which we will be releasing next week, we're going to lead on from that into the 90s. Same thing again, you know, what was influencing Julian? How was he tackling waters? What kind of bait was he using? You're basically going to be immersed In the different areas of carp angling. So hopefully this brings you a little bit of a different perspective of Julian Cundiff. Before we lead into the episode. Of course as always we are sponsored by Carp Hunter Giveaways. You can find out a little bit more about these guys at carphuntergiveaways.co.uk. I'm a big fan of these guys. They're absolutely fantastic. For those of you who don't know. They do prize draws to suit every budget. You can win. Bital arms, rods bivvies everything that you can think of pretty much they have a prize draw for it so go ahead check them out i'm sure you won't be disappointed without further ado let's lead in to this episode with julian cundiff julian welcome along how are you doing
1: I'm doing good, mate, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Pleasure. We're honoured. Absolutely honoured. Are you joining us? I haven't asked you, actually. Are you joining us in a tipple of the episode? Are you having a drink with us?
1: Uh, I'm alcohol-free. I've always been alcohol-free. So it's uh, 0.0% Bavarian uh, Holland alcohol-free. Working for the courts from sort of the 80s onwards, it was made clear to me, if you get done for drink-driving, your job's gone and you sort of get used to not drinking alcohol. And I might have a glass of, you know, champagne or a glass of red wine if it's at a birthday party, but it's never done anything for me, to be honest, you know. I don't criticise those that do, but when you work in the court for 38 years, it does sort of put you off beer
0: mm. and marriage.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose you you see uh you see the raw end of it, don't you? In the, yeah, the I, I accept
1: here. that. I do see the I do see the the far <laughs> far right reach of it, yeah. but um no, you know, I, I, fair play to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Pete, what what's your tipple today? Um, so I've got two different ones. So I'm actually in the office today, so I've got these little three thirty mil cans. So I've gone one with a Harbour Ale. That's a puff in tears. Um, And I've also got a a tap room, which I've not had before, which is a Dubstone IPA as well. Fantastic.
0: In contrast to to Julian, I am having a bit of alcohol tonight. I've got a few beers. (laughs) I've got a, a Waitrose Dutchie Golden Ale. I've got an Old Speckled Hen, a Sharps Atlantic Pale Ale. Two Hop House Thirteens and a Bier Moretti. I sound like a right alcoholic now, don't
1: I? <laughs> Sounds like a rider for some of the concerts I've been to. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'll uh, I'll pace myself. I probably won't have them all. Um, <laughs> I, we've been drinking. Me and Pete have been drinking way too much on these podcasts, um, so we do need to uh, quiet it down a little bit. But that's what I'm drinking so let's crack on i mean where do we start julian you know it's obviously you've you've been in the industry for a long time you've obviously been angling for a long time how did it all start for you
1: uh well um none of my family or my friends had any interest in fishing whatsoever and um I, I just happened to be having a bike ride with my mates one day in 1976. So what we're talking about, 44 years ago, we just happened to cycle up a railway embankment about three miles from home, um, cycle on the railway embankment, and there was water to the right-hand side. I don't think I would have even called it a pond. I would have called it water. And the, I looked down the bank, and it would be about June time, July, and there was, um, there was a guy sat down there behind a screen with um, two fishing rods or whatever they were. I wouldn't have even known they were fishing rods. Um, my mates carried on cycling and me being inquisitive stopped, chucked my bike down, ran down the steps. So I'd be 13 um, and he was playing he was playing a fish or the rod was bent uh, and he landed this fish and it would be a tench about, oh, I would say about five pounds. Nice. And weird, weirdly enough, this bloke, had the best carp connection you could ever think of. It was Eric Hodson who actually founded the British carp study group, the BCSG, yeah. and the Pike Anglers. I think it was I think they were called the, I think they were called the Pike Society and the National Association of Specimen Groups. So this bloke, this what I called an old bloke, he was probably a lot younger then than I am now. So whenever I think about old people, I think, oh my God, he was younger than I am now. And he he was, um, he was tench fishing. And literally I watched him tench fishing for about 20 minutes, came back the next day and I was hooked on fishing that, you know, that was 1976.
0: Which wasn't long after he, he formed the BCSG was 1969,
1: was it? 1969 with Peter Mohan. I yeah. think because I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was that Peter Moen couldn't get in um, uh, whatever the Redmire people, you know, that it was that sort of era. I mm. think, was it the, not the gold, whatever club it was, was it the the, um, the car, I don't whatever club it was, he couldn't get in, Dick Walker's locked. And I think that Eric yeah. said, well, why don't you form your own car organisation?
0: Golden Scale Club, was it?
1: And that's how it... The Golden Scale Club, that's right. Yeah, the Golden Scale Club. And Eric, uh, Eric was a great organiser and he loved groups and uh, they formed the BCSG. But the weird thing was, by the mid-70s, and Eric was never a carp angler, really. He was always a, what I call a specimen hunter. By the mid-70s, he had no interest in carp fishing whatsoever. And he would always refer to them as steam pigs. You know, oh, you don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be fishing for those steam pigs. And, you know, quite rightly, I didn't. So, you know, I literally started off fishing for roach and the small species. Um, and then I progressed to tench. Uh, so that would be about, you know, 76, 77. In 78, I took up match fishing. Um, I did that for about six months. And I thought, this just isn't for me. I'm, I'm having to go at a time I don't want to go fishing, sort of 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. I don't even get to choose where I want to fish, you know, because you come out of a hat and I'm fishing for fish that I really, I don't really want to catch 10, four ounce roach. I want to catch one four pound tench. Mm. So I soon gave that up and um, I moved into specimen hunting in about 79. So I started fishing for tench, pike and eels with Eric.
0: And where where were these, whereabouts were you fishing in these early days?
1: I mean, literally in the early days, it was um, Drax power station, it was Drax Pond, which actually in those days was known as Brock Hulls Lake. Um, and then it became known as Big Drax because Drax was the village. And there was another pond called Little Drax. And I fished at Three Lakes Selby, I fished farm ponds. Um, j- just literally wherever I could go on my push bike or my dad was prepared to take me and bring me back the same day. So I would say within a radius of seven miles.
0: Wow. Yeah. And this is obviously in Yorkshire, isn't it?
1: Yeah, this is in Yorkshire near Selby. So it, it, it was I mean I'm fishing a lake there that had, you know, and I dropped on a lake there that had pike to 30 pounds, tench in those days to seven pounds, roach to two and a half, eels to five, and breed to ten. And I although I didn't know it, it had carp to mid doubled now that is a specimen hunter's Bestening paradise mm. yeah and to, remember that's 1976 to and i'm just thinking this is normal <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's quite a start isn't it that really yeah. is quite a start yeah very yeah. blessed yeah when was it you realized that actually you know what you were fishing was was a real premier specimen water
1: um, I think it was when I, I caught um I think I caught a six pound tench in about seventy eight um and I sent it in um, to one of the um the fishing magazines and it it won me a, a you know, like a um it actually won me an Abu five oh five the close face reels the golden and and, and I, they were making a big fuss of I thought well this is this is not even one of the, <laughs> the biggest ones there and I realised how big it was then. When I started reading the fishing magazine, so I started reading Angling Times and it was clear that the fish that I were catching were fish that, you know, the older blokes would have liked to catch. So I realised how blessed I was to have literally a specimen hunter's paradise uh, three miles from my house.
2: Yeah. The ooze is very close to Selby, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, the, the River Ooze runs through Selby, uh, but I, I never was. Eric was never, a, Eric was never a river fisherman, and I was never... I fished a pike in the rivers, but I, I was never a river fisherman. I I, I like the, the sedate pursuit of fish. So I loved, although I'm very busy when I'm fishing, the sedate I don't want to be having I mean, to wind in and recast and wind in and recast. I, I, I quite like the sedateness of it all. That's why tench and bream and eels and, you know, dead baiting for pike were always my first choice.
0: What was your first fish?
1: First fish ever was a perch of four ounces caught spinning with a Devon minnow. Wow. First ever, and um, yeah, first ever that was, and I've still got a picture of that and it's it was um, it was a yeah, four ounce perch caught spinning with a Devon minnow, because in those days that was the, you know, the traditional style yeah. that you yeah. span uh, it was a six foot Woolworths Tokaz, when Woolworths had their own brand of fishing tackle called Winfield yeah. and it was a Tokaz Tokaz, I think it was solid glass fibre rod uh, six foot green um, with an intrepid black prince real, and you know that uh, you know I, we fish for anything we could we, you know I could catch but I got more excited by a three pound tench than I did by an eight ounce perch and uh, you know I, I, I've always been more of a um, I've not been a predator fisher I've always been more of a sedate float fisherman ledger as it was called in those days you either float yeah. fished or you ledgered
0: yeah yeah, definitely. Definitely. Those I've got a few uh Devon minnows there. <laughs> really yeah. quirky old things, aren't they? I bet yeah. they'd still catch as well. Though I imagine not many. Absolutely, though. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. So I mean that that brings us up to late 70s, right? When you started kind of specialist Let, angling.
1: Yeah, late 70s. Sort of 79 was um the year that I became really obsessed with fishing more than my O-levels which um, resulted in a glorious failure of the O-levels and having to go back a year which was the best thing ever because um whereas all my friends went on in in later years and did A-levels university and in effect went on the job market in about the mid 80s I went on the job market in 1980 when it was a lot easier to get a job so failing my O-levels was the best thing ever and I failed them purely simply because I was more obsessed with reading course angler than um, mathematics textbooks. <laughs> so, I don't. So, mind. yeah, you, you know, and we all know in those days, the exams, you know, from March through to probably June was the exams period when you had to revise. Well, that was the best time That's ever not, for going fishing, you know. <laughs> so the two didn't mix. But, yeah, yeah, I was a specimen hunter in those days. Um, Eric, you know, Eric would fish every weekend. I'd join him. Uh, and, we, you know, it was fishing, you know, fishing, fishing girls and motorbikes. But I was more successful with um, fishing than I was with girls, certainly.
0: <laughs> that changed, though, didn't it? Because, I mean, you were voted sexiest man in Anglia. <laughs> yeah, as, 1990- as people made him. Of- Big fuss about recently. Uh,
1: Oh god, yeah, it's (laughs) it's like, yeah, it it just the reigning and undisputed. They never Mm, had the competition again. So here we are, here we are, twenty-seven years undisputed. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was, it was one of those things. But uh, you know, I absolutely loved my fishing, and I still do it. It was, I can't explain it. It's just like my dad loves cricket. I love Formula One. But if somebody said to me, explain fishing. It really is quite daft, but there again, so is riding 70 miles or climbing a hill or watching cricket all day. You know, um, there is, you know, it, it's one of those things, isn't it? You either get it or you, it's not one of those things you you can do. You either love it or you don't love it. It's not a, it's not what I call a gray thing. People mm. don't just flit in and out of fishing. They either, it's either their hobby or it's, well that's pretty stupid isn't it it's there's no there's no middle ground with fishing
0: yeah i mean because it's it's not a logical thing i mean we all love it so much because it 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 stirs up passion within us and emotion you can't describe emotion or passion can you so it's like you say you get it or you don't get it it's impossible to describe it
1: and i was lucky i got it from day one watching that you know um you know, watching the fishing, I, I, I got it for from day one, but it wasn't, it's not always just been about the fishing. I love the history of fishing, the personalities, the books, you know, the the films, the, it, I'm a fisherman rather than a cat. I don't have to catch. I just have to give it my best shot. So yeah. it's never disappointing me fishing because I've always been about the journey rather than the destination. So what other people have caught has never really bothered me other than inspired me to try harder. I've never judged my enjoyment of the sport by the size of the fish I've caught. And if somebody said, well, give you a million pounds now if you can tell me an answer to your biggest carp, pike, eel, tension, bream, I, I, I genuinely wouldn't have a clue because they were a memory rather than a weight.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, I mean... Eric Hodson, for those that don't, I mean, he's quite a poignant figure back in 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 oh, that yeah. day and age. Um, you were you were kind of, I want to say apprentice, but yeah, for want of a better funny. word. I mean, you you were he was showing you the ropes, was he?
1: Eric Eric saw something in me, um, my love of fishing, that wasn't. There was a couple of us that he, I want to say, befriended that were interested in fishing. But of all those people, I was the only one who was interested in the history, in, you know, what made fish tick, about going fishing, about the books. and things. So I think Eric saw something in me, somebody that wasn't just interested in catching the biggest or the most or, or just going fishing. So, yeah, I was definitely um, Eric's apprentice. And um, without Eric Hodson, certainly... I, I don't know. There would be a Julian Cundiff in fishing, really. To be honest, you know, and I owe mo- most of this to Eric.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and did you get involved with or, or spend any time with Peter Mohan? I mean, I, it probably wasn't like this, but I always imagine them, you know, fishing no, together. No, because,
1: no, no they, no, they were they 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 were pretty. Um, I think they were. It would almost. Um, it would almost like being put in, uh, it's like Dragon's Den. They may work together on screen, but they were both pretty strong characters mm. and there was never a first and second in command. Peter was out and out a carp I think he liked his bridge as well. Whereas Eric was always a specimen hunter that had the ability to, be a great organiser as well. I mean, you know, so Eric was the specimen hunter. Peter was really the carpenter. So I never ever saw them together. Well, I I think I did once see them together. But no, no, I I, I think I met Peter twice um, and I spoke to him a couple of times and um, he he famously once told me that I would never be in the BCSG while I was a friend of um, Tim Paisley's.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps we we'll, would definitely like to hear more about that um, a little bit later. Um, so, I, I mean, moving on from there, um, was there a certain time or, or if ever that fishing kind of really overtook your life? I know you said it overtook your exams, but as, you know, as a young lad, it's not easy to have, uh, not hard to have someone overtake your exams. Was there a point it- where it kind of really started monopolizing your, your most of your time and all of your thoughts, et cetera?
1: I, I think I was very lucky, really, in that um, I've always loved music as well, as much as I, and I've always loved motorbikes. And I've all, so I have this three way <laughs> balancing system. I love my fishing, I love music. And I always say to people, I, I went to a concert before I ever went fishing, I saw Kiss in 1976 at. Um, the Manchester Free Trade Hall before I ever caught a fish. So I absolutely adore music. I adored fishing and I adored motorbikes. And I'm one of those people I can never discard stuff. So I don't easily get taken in by stuff. But when I do, it's there for the rest of my days. So if, if somebody has to describe me now that knew me, 25 years ago, they would say, Oh my God, does he still like fishing? Does he still like mm-hmm. Kiss? Does he still like, you know, American wrestling? Does he still like motorbikes? Does he still have long hair? I'm one of those people who I've never bothered what other people have thought about me and my interests, and I've never, I've never sort of jumped on things. So, although fishing probably at times, probably in the 90s, as I'll discuss, became too it overbalanced the rest of my life. It, it, as a kid, it was my parents always instilled on me: "You've got to pass your exams. You've got to go, you know, and things like that." So I loved it, but I also loved the concert. So no, it never, it never, it never drowned me. Thank God, if that's the right expression.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I, I think it seems like every every passion of yours kind of shines through the others maybe because i'm sure you've written extensively about kiss and about your motorbikes and it's you know it's it's almost i mean you've been so prevalent in in the media certainly through the years of of me um carp fishing that um it's almost like (laughs) i I sort of know you without chatting to you just because you 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 do seem like an open book with these passions yeah oh yeah
1: yeah yeah. i I don't hide what i like I, i tell people what i like and i I would like to think when anybody meets me, they'll go, God, he's just like we just expected like, yeah. he would be, yeah, which is, you know, uh, which is which is great. You know, I, I, I love talking about motorbikes. I love talking about music. I love talking about fishing, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm a pretty open book. I am what you see or read about.
0: Yeah, which is possibly a, a rare thing in this day and age. Yeah, unfortunately. it is. it yeah. is. Yeah. 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 We're up to early 80s what was going on in in your world of angling then?
1: Well, in 1980, obviously I got a job working for the court, uh, which was great. So instead of having like five or 10 pound a week pocket money, um, all of a sudden you go to two, three, 400 pound a month uh, uh, salary, which makes a huge difference. to what you can buy. So instead of having to buy stuff on credit from a Bennett's of Sheffield check spread, I was actually able to buy it, you know, I was actually able to buy decent gear. So I would go to um, Trevor Moss's tackle shop, which was one of the first specialist shops uh, that was in Gainsborough. um, And I could actually buy buy the gear I wanted rather than having to get it from Woolworths or from Bennett's of Sheffield. Um, so, you know, my, my fishing started to progress. I was still, I, I was no way a carp but They were just another fish to me. But that was the, I didn't want to say the indoctrination of Eric, but that was what Eric instilled on me. A pike was a pike, a tench was a tench, and a carp was just a steam pig. And, and naively, I had seen carp in the shallows at Drax. And I wasn't an experienced angler, and I just thought they were record tench. So I saw Mm -hmm. these fish, and I I used to say to Eric, there are record tench in here, mate. I have seen carp, tench, into double figures. Well, of course, they were actually carp that were into double figures, but Eric never let on, and um, I never really realised there were carp in Drax until... um, we were throwing some bread in, you know, because you get bored, and all these fish were slurping them off the surface. And I thought they're not tench, they're not roach, they're carp. But Eric was always very careful to steer me away from carp. He was they're steam pinch. You, you know, you're a good tench angler. We fish a pike in the winter, tench in the summer, bream in the autumn. Uh, you know, so I was I was I was a, I was a decent specimen on to you know, and a good amount of you know tench to my name, a bream and pike
0: do you, do you feel that was because eric kind of wanted you to to work your way up the ranks so to speak
1: i think it was 50-50 he had fallen out of love with carp fishing um i think he'd been pushed to one side in the bcsg i don't know um he found what was a really a premier cart tench water and his kind that kind of tench fishing, suit, that kind of fishing suited him. He didn't have to spend two or three days bivvied up. He was one of the old school anglers, um, and I think it suited him. And I think it was a 50-50 of he didn't want me to run before I could walk. Mm. Um, and he had fallen out of love with carp fishing. And I think, you know, I, it would be like me trying to persuade somebody to pike fish or match fish. Um, he He simply let me follow him and um I was you know i I, I think I don't think it I don't think he even caught a carp till about 1982 uh, and I think that was purely by accident
0: was your first carp caught by design or or by accident oh no,
1: pure I th- in fact I, pr- I think I had a couple of single figure carp um from various farm ponds um whilst float fishing for tench um and they were they were just they, they were nothing. I, I loved hench and I loved pike and I loved eels and I, I, I loved the beauty of roach. And these were scruffy little four to seven pound um, carp that really didn't ignite my desire at all.
0: What year was it you caught your first carp, then?
1: I would think it would probably be about 1982, mm. you know, as in carp, uh, as in, you know, a, any sort of carp. But, um, yeah. but I think 83 was the first time I caught a double.
0: Mm, mm.
1: And, and that was pure, purely by accident because um, we were fishing with sweet corn. I mean, sweet corn, what a bait! I mean, the late seventies to early early eighties, sweet corn made made everything. You know, tench, bream, roach, y- you couldn't go wrong. And we would just use sweet corn um, side hooked, or you know, we thread three or four pieces on a size eight or ten or twelve hook and every so often we get bust off and we think we'd lost the record you know the record tench um and we were backwinding with Mitchell's because I hadn't actually got my cardinals then it was just Mitchell reels um and then one day I had this churn as so you back wound mm-hmm. um and I, I got this thing in and it was a double figure carp and I think it was about 12 pounds I mean I'd have to you know as I say I'm rubbish on weight it, it would be about 12 pounds and all of a sudden, I don't know what it was, I just thought, wow, this, this is, wow, this is, and I had a five and a six pound tench in a session, which are specimen carp, and a 12 pound carp, especially with tench, and a 12 pound carp was just a, you know, a low double, but there was something about that double that all of a sudden it was like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> this, is, this is interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. And by this time, are you, are you driving or you got a motorbike or anything?
1: Um, I had a moped. Uh, I mean, I I was a traditional push bike, dad's transport, (laughs) 1980, join the court, get your first moped, a little 50, a a Suzuki TS50. Then you get yourself, I got myself a TS100. uh, And then in 1982... Because you could, you could ride up to, um, I think it was 100 CCs, and then I passed my test, which meant you could ride 250 and above. So in 1982, I got my first 250 uh, motorbike. So then all of a sudden, you know, you weren't restricted to about 8 miles at 27 miles an hour, or 22 miles an hour with fishing tackle. So I started travelling a little bit further afield, but yeah, I got a motorbike then, and I caught my first double.
2: Nice. Very nice. Um, so the, the transition, I guess, from from your tench fishing into the carp. Uh, what what was the the carp scene like then for you, sort of oh, locally was, to where you were?
1: There, there wasn't a carp scene. There, there, there was no carp scene until. I mean, obviously, I, I'm an avid reader and I read Course Angler. I was never really impressed with Angling Times and the Angler's Mail because they were always like new news program. New, well, newsy. Whereas Course Angler had Specialist, at Colin Dyson's magazine. It had specialist articles. I was a mm-hmm. member of the NESG, so you get proper articles on on tench. And this was before carp fishing had exploded. Yes, the heart, the hair was in existence in the early eighties, but carp fishing hadn't exploded to the masses. Carp fishing was something that you did when you were thirty onwards. Um, and so there was as much about bream, tench eels pike as there ever was about carp in the general fishing magazine um so you know i'd read a carp article now and again but i'd read two tench articles you know the nesg was the national association of specimen groups it wasn't the it wasn't a carp group by any stretch of the imagination you might have one carp specialist within the group but you would certainly have more pike tench, and bream specialists um and you know i wasn't really taken in by carp fishing i remember getting um carp fever and i read that and i thought oh this is interesting and the, the when carp fishing exploded for me was i went to drax one day and it would be about i think it was 82 or 80 maybe 83 and there was two younger guys now when i say younger guys they would probably i was 20 then and they would probably be 25 and they were bivvied up they had um umbrellas with sides on them they had two two rods each, or might, might have had three. Well, certainly two, and they were um, and they had cardinal reels. And I thought, oh, that, that they're not tench fishing, and they were the, although they were the young school, they were the old school of don't tell us anything. So they, oh, we're only tench fishing and all stuff like that. But I knew they weren't, uh, and one of them was reading the carp strikes back. Um, And I was, you know, we all know what we're like. I I, I would pester them and pester them and speak to them. And in the end, one of them gave up and said, just just take that and read that. And it was the Carp Strikes Back by Rod Hutchinson. And that was like that was the pivotal moment. When I read that, I got carp fishing. Carp Fever was the was the textbook. But the Carp Strikes Back was without a shadow of a doubt. The inspiration for me when I read that, I understand. I understood why it was going to be carp fishing and nothing else.
2: So that was a big influence on you then.
1: Oh, she, I, I'm the most unhutchy person you'll ever fish. I am Kevin Maddock, so I'm very technical. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm that kind of angler. But Rod Hutchinson's book was what what inspired me to to go carp fishing. So that would be eighty three, and I was really started to struggle then with catching tench you know they were lovely but i'm thinking i really should be pat- carp fishing here and um in 84 i i um i, I was i was shown the hair rig and and you know it, it the world the world was never the same again
2: yeah no i, I can believe it so that's that's before my time but no I, I can believe that so i was going to ask how you found that transition um, um, from the tent oh, fishing to carp, but I imagine with the the introduction of the hair rig, it only sort of helped things oh, out there.
1: It, it was because we were we were in the in the early eighties before the hair rig. You were making trout pellet paste. You were side hooking the pellet paste. You're having to sit and strike runs, and to be honest, it was no you know it is so easy nowadays with the hair rig. You were having to sit on your rod. You were missing runs, and I remember this lad. Um in 1984 on the pond, and you know, we were fairly friendly, but he was he was probably four years older than me, far more experienced. And he brought down the hair rig to show me, and it was Bayer Pearl and 1.7, and it was hung underneath this hook, and there was a bit of matchstick, and he got a boilie on it. It was a proper boilie and it looked absolutely ridiculous. I remember saying to my girlfriend at the time, I said. Oh, Chris, he's a bit of a... And he was a wind-up merchant. I says he's winding me up here. I said, I'm going to chuck it out. And if it doesn't go within 10 minutes, I'm, I'm not bothering with that. I'm going back to the side hooking or whatever I called it. I chucked it out. And literally within five minutes, it was... You didn't have to strike. It screamed off. It's was hooked. Um, and it went to the net. And after that, I thought, wow, this has It made... It was far... It was the biggest advance ever in fishing. The hair rig... I would say that 90% of people fishing nowadays would not go fishing if self hooking rigs did not exist. That was mm. at least 90%. And it made cart fishing easy. I love it, but it certainly made cart. That was it. That that was the pivotal moment when I was given the hair rig and I realised I actually could fish all night without killing myself for the next day.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and <clears throat> with, with with sort of like, so this this transition period, we're not talking like a long time, are we? Oh, no, no. Had, had you been sort of writing anything for magazines regarding the tench side of things? or?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, um, my mum, I was absolutely crap at school. I had no interest in school. And I came from a grammar school, not being critical, but if you ever were at grammar schools... They were very much about the achievers and not very much about the um, the also rounds. And I was one of those kids. I wasn't thick, but I certainly wasn't an achiever. And you were left to your own devices. It was like, well, unless you were going to be a level student, you were going to join the cricket club. You were going to go skiing. You know, you had to tick certain boxes in those days to get on. And the only subject i was any good at was english and i was i got the ability to write my mum was a writer as well and i love reading be it you know sounds for music or anything anything i read and i love reading and so um you know you progress from reading to writing and the first the first time i ever appeared in print was 1978 um, and um, I wrote into Course Angler um, and I I asked a question of Ask Billy. I think he was called Billy not, and he was this old bloke and they answered my question. And I've still got that cut in 1978. So that was the first time I ever appeared in print. And then I caught a couple of good tench that I sent in and I won um, Angling Times, young kingfish could it be the kingfisher guild or something and um, i i won a few prizes so i started getting me picture in the print mm-hmm. i joined the national association of specimen groups uh, and their first magazine was called freeline and i wrote a few articles on pike fishing tench fishing and breed fishing just just one two-page articles and i enjoyed that so there's no there's no carp article i wasn't carp fisherman so yeah I, i'd appeared in print a few times
2: and this was purely on the hobby side of things, the, the writing oh, as well.
1: Gosh, yeah, it was just a hobby. Oh look, you, you weren't getting paid in those days, and I don't think I ever got paid for an article until oh nineteen eighty eighty eight. So okay. yeah, eighty eight. So no, no, the, no you, there was no money in, in writing then. Certainly, unless you were um, unless you were one of the big guns writing books. No, no. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was just a hobby. In fact, it still is. I don't write for money. I can assure you.
2: No, <laughs> oh, no, it's very good of you. And then you, you would obviously enjoy doing things like this as well. So.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's never been. It's never been about the money at all. Ever, ever. You know, it's it's never been about money.
2: Mm.
0: What's um? So, sorry to chip in there. I mean, in this kind of era, what what tackle were you using? Do you remember for for the for the carp?
1: Oh, I, I can tell you exactly what I was using. I was you, I started, I was tench fishing with Northwestern AC2 glass fiber rods with Cardinal 54 reels. And when the, and they just weren't strong enough. For, so when in 83, when I realized I was going to be a carp angler, I upgraded them to um Northwestern ss6s and ss5s now the ss5 was a through action i mean nowadays you'd look at it it was like a stick of chewing gum it's like a banana you know you'd shake it and it would wobble for about four minutes you know but in those days that was a proper carp rod and then the ss6 was more of a distance rod and then the ss6a was like long range you could probably do 60 yards with it <laughs> um so it was it was it was, you know, the glass fiber rods, and I certainly didn't get um, a, um, oh, uh, a proper rod until nineteen eighty six Rod Hutchinson Horizons. So the first carbon fiber rod would be nineteen eighty six. So it was, it was just, it was just upgraded tench tackle, bottom of the range carp tackle.
0: Yeah. Did Did you stick with the Abu reels?
1: Oh, yeah. I was I was always an Abu Cardinal man um, until about 88 when I realised that the Cardinal 57, which was a huge reel, mm. it just wasn't a really a huge reel in the grand scheme of things. No. You know, if you could cast 90 yards with one of them, you'd have to use a shock leader or an eight pound line. So I, I was always an Abu man, always an Abu man. Again, from Eric, Eric had the old style abos, the, uh, the Cardinal 40s and the 4X. I sort of preferred the more sexy black ones, the 54, the 55, mm. the 155, um, purely and simply because I always played off the clutch. I never played backwind. I just thought backwind was horrendous, and I always played off the clutch. And in those days, when you, pl- you, you played off the clutch, the actual expression was called hangman because mm-hmm. you were letting the carp hang itself off against the clutch. So it wasn't called fishing off the clutch. It was clearly called in the early eighties hangman method. You were letting them hang against the pull of the clutch. I was always an abu man. They were, the, they were, they were, they're like Ducati's. They were, they were a work of art that you really should be displaying on a pr- plinth in your house mm. rather than taking them on muddy, muddy waters. But yeah, I was always an abu man.
0: Mm. I, I've got a um, a Mitchell three hundred, the old uh, half bale. Yeah, 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 it, yeah, It's the second version, so it's kind of early forties, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. But they're, they're like proper old old thing, yeah. but I mean, just the the engineering of it. And I tell you what, the clutch people say they're crap by today's standards, and of course they are. But yeah. it ain't bad. It really isn't bad, you know. And it's it's great fun. Um, they
1: were See, I always found that the Mitchells were great because they, they stuck a lot of abuse. They were great for pike fishing because they had big olds, They were a big reel in comparison to the Abus, which were a tiny reel. Yeah. But I, you're either, it's funny, you're either a Hutchinson man or you're a Maddox man. Maddox, yeah. You're, you're, yeah, or you're a, you're a Mitchell fan yeah. or you're
0: an Abu fan. Abu fan, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it,
1: was, it was very, you know, it was very polarised in those days. So, and I was always a Maddox abu cardinal man
0: <laughs> that was that was the flag. it was good enough for fight. kevin
1: it was good enough for me
0: yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah and th- those cardinal 55s they're still gorgeous looking i mean they're a bit sexier than the old um 300s i think but they're, they're just something about them they're timeless the, the, you were talking yeah, to are, us before the, about the um about your old yamaha it's that kind of thing isn't it just that kind of timeless
1: oh they are the the look of them was that they they never made a better looking reel than the the cardinal 55 the 155s were okay and the 157s are okay and from a distance they looked exactly the same they were just a cheaper version but the original 55 the original 57 were a thing of beauty that they were a thing of beauty i mean they, they the engineering was great, but the plastic spools used to explode, you know, because yeah. under pressure you'd tighten your line and then explode. But as a thing of – they really are something that you would have in your cupboard to display rather than on your rods nowadays. You know, I'll probably get hung by the old – what is it? Hmm. The old school Carp Society page for even suggesting that.
0: Yeah. I know what you mean. It, like the, the – gu- Everything like the gold on them, there was that gold Black. kind of sigil, and there was the flash of the red around yeah. the um the drag. They,
1: they just got it right, it was yeah. just like yeah. the Ducati 999 or whatever. It, it, you know, Ducatis are better nowadays and more reliable, they're sexy, but that original Ducati 999, it will, you know, they'll never make a You know, you, you got your Formula One cars, you know, that there's an era where that is the sexiest looking thing, but I always think. Would that look sexy to a seventeen-year-old? A seventeen-year-old probably look at that that um, Abu Cardinal and say, "But if you think about it, look at the new Diawas with the gold spools, the black. There, mm. I'm not saying they look like cardinals, but there's a hint about them, isn't there? There's that they're, they're more cardinal than they are than they are Mitchell. Yeah, they, they, they're bordering on at times. The smaller ones are almost bordering on Abu type quality and looks, aren't they?
0: The the two thousand six hundreds, even to the 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 little um line yeah. of red along the back. Yeah. Okay, the drag isn't there on the yeah. on the Daiwa, but it is on the, the cardinal. They've even got yeah. that round um yeah. you know what I mean, the, the little bit of red, don't you? Yeah,
1: the, um, they, they are certainly there's certainly a hint yeah. of of ABU cardinals to those, to people who've had them. If you've yeah. never had one, you'll not recognise it. No. But I look at them no. and go, that reminds me of <laughs> yeah.
0: It's a tip of the hat, at least, isn't it? It, it, it really is yeah. is, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Sorry, I massively took you and Peter yeah, on fine. a tangent there. <laughs> I just got. Uh, I'm quite into the old tackle things. Obviously, it was, I mean, before my time, uh, before I was carp angling, but uh, I still, I still love that stuff. I really, really yeah, do. Yeah, it's awesome. yeah, something about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, where, where are we up to? We're up to 84, 84. was it? Yeah, hair rigs. Yeah, um, you joined the Carp Society as well in 84?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been a member of the... Um, I started off being a member of the NASG, Um, And I joined a specimen group, the Ebor specimen group. And technically, I don't think you should have joined the NESG unless you were a member of a specimen group. But I think Eric slipped me in as a, you know, as a as a as a member anyway. But um, I joined the Ebor specimen group um, and that was quite interesting. Um, You know, so you've got a couple of guys who like pike, a couple of guys who like carp. But I was sort of getting really pulled Uh, Whenever I was tench fishing, I felt I should be carp fishing, although I loved my pike fishing in winter because, of course, carp didn't feed in the winter, as we believed. Well, they only fed down south now and again. (laughs) So I I understood pike fishing. But yeah, it was um, I, I joined the carp site in 1984 purely and simply because I'd seen Edition one of um, the first carpfisher, which was carpfisher one with Mike Wilson with that carp across his chest. Mm. I just looked at that. I thought, again, it was that Abu Cardinal. It was that thing of beauty. I read a couple of the magazines and they were like, they were so much better than course angler, because course angler not only covers specimen hunting, team, but it, co- it covered matches, it covered it covered all sorts of course fishing, and the more you get into one sort of side of course fishing, the less I, I didn't really want to read about who won the world championship in Blatis Favre or whatever in 19... It didn't, and I was becoming more and more polarised on the big fish scene, and then you know, you, you read the NESG Freeline magazine, which was great, but then all of a sudden you see Carp Fisher and there's, like, 92 pages only on Carp and It's like, wow. So I joined the Carp site in 1984, yeah, for the magazine.
0: <laughs> so it was literally just for the magazine back then?
1: Absolutely, just for the magazine. The yeah. magazine was a thing of beauty. It was a pound, um, and you. Jo- I think... I think I actually purchased it from some I went to um, um, some conference and they had a pile of and I bought that. And I thought, wow, this it was was just like your first naughty book. (laughs) 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 And it was just it was like, wow, this is, you know, I can still see that magazine the first time. It was like issue one of Kerrang for me or or whatever it was. I remember the first issue I read and I just thought, wow and I've still got it. I've still it's still in my collection because I'm one of these people who doesn't throw anything away. And, you know, I, I, so I got issue one and then I realised there was probably another four issues to catch up on, but nothing will ever beat cartfisher one or cartwheel one. And you know, and all of a sudden I started reading about cart fishing, um, and it really was um it, it, it was it was like it was like the Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe and you just started to go through the wardrobe.
0: Mm. Kerrang! I haven't. You jolted a memory for me. Karang yeah. magazine, bloody yeah. hell, that takes me back. Is that still going? Surprise me. No, well,
1: Kerrang well, was really a thing of its time. It took over from Sounds, I think, in 1980 when new wave of british heavy metal kicked off and then really from the 80s until grunge kicked in so it was very very strong but of course it, it, it hasn't survived the pandemic it died in the pandemic ah. but if you were a karang, if you were a karang reader in 1984 and read a 2010 Kerrang, you'd think what the hell is this you know it, it had to obviously pick the market that was buying magazines. So yeah, yeah, Kerrang! of its time was great, but it hasn't survived. But really, between nineteen eighty and I would say ninety four, it was it was an incredible magazine.
0: Yeah, nineties is is where I'd have read it. So yeah, uh, you'd have
1: read it in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, up to probably the the end of the nineties, it was it was what I call a rock magazine, and thereafter, of course, it had to you know, spread its wings and take in, I, I think I saw Oasis in there. And I thought, what the hell?
0: <laughs> That's not right, you know, is it? That's
1: Yeah, I love Oasis, <laughs> but not in Karangas. guys. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's kind of, it, it, it draws a kind of parallel to what we were talking earlier about, you know, obviously you're involved with Nash, know what Nash are doing now and and, you know not to disrespect what they're doing at all but it's just appealing to the the younger generation which is they're the ones they're the ones watching the videos you know they're the ones on youtube they're the ones getting involved with the content so it's understandable yeah
1: absolutely yeah absolutely but yeah the the car i bought car i joined the car society purely and simply for carp fisher not because it was the right thing to do
0: I mean, back back then, what what was the Carp Society? Because obviously it's very different now. What Was it literally, Ooh. I mean, wh- how would you sum it, it up to us? Th-
1: well, the Carp Society was Tim Paisley, wasn't it? it was, um, mm. The CAA was Peter Moen, and he ran it. Um, it was non-political. It was very dictatorial, uh, and it was um, very southern-based. And I remember Tim Paisley, I suppose, saying to Rod Hutchinson, or used to say to Tim Paisley, much like uh, Peter Moen said to Eric, you know, um, I don't agree with X, Y, and Z, and I think Rod said to Tim, well, why don't you start your own organisation, or the other way around, whatever it was. And really, it was, um, you know, it was Tim, Rod, uh, Greg Fletcher. They set up the Carp Society, and the Carp Society really, um, it exploded in the eighties because carp fishing exploded. Well, I wouldn't say no. It exploded in the '90s, but I think it took off. It, it started to catch off in the '80s, and I think the Carp Society was it was a more open. The CAA, which I was um, joined as well, I was felt was very. Um, it was very insular. It, it felt like a band of six or eight people who were always in. Whereas the Carp Society, I, I thought, was a wider band. It was. Mm. It was more. A, a, more, there were carp. More carp society. But again, for a lot of people, you are either a CAA member or you're a carp society member. <laughs> Some of my friends were CAA members, not carp society members. But I was, I was felt a kinship with Tim. You know, and I, I would read Tim's stuff and thought, wow, we, you know. We, I, again, it's you know timeline. I joined the carp society before the CAA, so the carp society was my ba- Was my baby. Had I joined the CAA. In 1982, I might have thought different.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, do you? This is totally off track. Did did you ever go down the path of joining the BCSG or not?
1: Oh yeah, but I um, I, I applied to join the BCSG in 1992, but I didn't have ten years. Uh, Cart fishing experience i think it was Mm. 10 years so i'd only got eight and i got you know i got a refusal letter an explanation and then i joined i think in 96 and i've been a bcsg member certainly for 24 25 years
0: yeah yeah
1: i'm a proud member of the bcsg yeah
0: it's it's interesting isn't it i mean it, it seems like now i don't know what your thoughts on this are but because social media and things like that is so profound. I think a lot of people give social media a hard time. I think it does fantastic. I things, think it's fantastic.
1: But... I love social media. Love mm.
0: it. Yeah. Do you feel that these kind of organizations almost die of old age because there is this new way to connect to people? I don't, I don't know. Um, I think
1: about. there's always a danger of being stuck in a time warp. And I always said this and I'm, I, I, I've i just recently granted life membership of the carp society for my um you know my services to the carp society and i would bang on for years and saying like look guys we need to target the younger people as well and i think unless you move with the times you can get forgotten uh, uh, like the couple well, we explained the Corder podcast i was not on thinking tackle and i was not in certain carp fishing magazines and it was Who is Julian Cundiff? And that's the danger that unless you are constantly evolving, you won't take in the new membership. And um, I I do think some organisations fall by the wayside. Mm. The Carp Society hasn't fallen by the wayside. The Carp Society is still strong. The BCSG doesn't want to be everything to everybody. It's got 500 members. It's something you should, if you want to do you should strive to join. I always wanted to be a <laughs> BCSG member because it was um, it was um, something where my peers were members of. You yeah. know, when you see Rod Hutchinson and people like that, then and Peter Springgate and people like that, for me to be allowed to join that, um, it was a, a badge of honor. It doesn't make it any better or me any better. I never do that. It's what I. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about it. It's how I feel about it,
0: yeah, and I was de- proud to be in it. De- definitely, I mean, BCSG is something I always aspired to be in, and it was, you know, very. Um, I mean, really looked up to to, to oh, that yeah. organisation. In funnily enough, I've actually uh, recently applied, literally this week, um, to be to finally to be in the BCSG. I understand a lot of people don't get accepted on the first one i'm not necessarily expecting to get accepted but um it's something i've always you know aspired to do
2: Absolutely. and i know
0: what you mean about you know moving with the times and staying current i also think it's nice to have something that you know perhaps doesn't change as much as other things you know no, it's, it's like, nice it's great, to have that that can it's a great
1: it's a great organization it produces a non-commercial magazine yeah. um and I, I, always, I always liked it because when I went along, people like Peter Springate, when I was accepted, treated me no differently than he would treat anybody there, which is how I've been brought up. So if I meet a kid who's 15, I don't treat him any different than I would treat Peter Springate. You know, obviously we've got more in common of our mm. age, but that kid will not know I treat him any different. And, you know, the BCSG, when I joined, I, I, I felt like it was a fellowship. Mm, And if I ever felt that an organisation was looking down on other anglers, I wouldn't be part of that organisation because that's not, you know, if the BCSG became the keep it real brigade, they could have my membership tomorrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's I I think probably the reality of it is possibly a little bit different from how it's been perceived by a lot of people over the years, maybe.
1: I think I think there was a time when it was very where it was somewhat elitist yeah but um you know who cares what other people think i'm proud to be a member of it and if i wasn't proud to be a member of it i i i i wouldn't be in it you know it's it's like everybody else who complains about stuff it's like okay well nobody's making you join you don't have to join mm. you, you know it's it's horses for courses and you know i, I was proud to join and I, I was almost quite proud to be refused and get in later it felt it more special
0: yeah 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 exactly well, it's like catching a car you know if you if yeah. you caught a carp every chuck wouldn't be yeah. the same would it yeah same no, kind of thing all. yeah I mean, we've obviously spoken and we touched on your um the tackle that you were using. What about baits? What, what I know you rig, you obviously on the hair rig. Um, yeah. what were you doing for bait back in that day and age?
1: Richworth's. Richworths, absolutely yeah. you know. Uh Richworth's um, I remember going to the tackle shop and they got a lot of boilers in there. There was Salmon Supreme, there was something in mango, I can't remember it, was something in mango. And it was um, honey yucatan. Yes, and I remember picking up honey yucatan and smelling it and thinking, mm-hmm. "Wow, that 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 that's nice." And it was freezer bait, uh, and that honey yucatan was, it you know, it, it, you'd go and buy a bag, and it was a game changer. Ready rolled boilies, fifteen mil that would catapult out in a straight line. I think it'd be about three hundred in a packet. And again, that was a game changer. That, that honey Yucatan, salmon supreme never worked for me, No, ne- never worked <laughs> for me. But there again, I probably used honey Yucatan so much that yep. it was, um, I used to soak my hook bakes in Jeff Kemp's honey flavor. Mm. And, um, you know, so well in advance of glugging and glazing. And um, I would use the, um, the standard honey Yucatans for um, uh, fishing over and, you know, In those days, I'll I'll never forget, and I used to laugh about this, we started pre-baiting the water. It would be about 85 in the close season because there was a a close season. And I remember we discussed, now we're going to bait up three times a week. Now, do we go for 30 boilies three times a week or do we go to 50? And we said, no, no, we can't use 50, 50 millers three times a week. It'll be too much. I've dropped more out the catapult and not picked it up nowadays. Genuinely, that's 30 was okay, but 50 would have been too much. So 150 boilies a week would have been too much.
0: It's it, yeah, times have changed.
1: (laughs) And it made, I have to say, it made a difference. Just 90 boilies, you know, a a, a, would catapult in in those days, one at a time. And they were, you know, very accurate. I soon realised that the more accurate were, the better. And and baiting up three times a week made a difference. Definitely made a difference.
0: Definitely. And and this is obviously something that I've spoken about a lot on this podcast. I mean, you know, putting the time in angling isn't just the time that you're sat behind your rod. You know, with no. your rig in the water. You know, putting that time into pre-bait, will, you you know, it can absolutely change your season. And, and that um,
1: suited me because I was doing my law exams. Eighty four. 85 and 86 I was doing my I was at Manchester I was you know uh, at Manchester doing my law exams through the court and so in the close season when you couldn't fish I would bait up it was good because I couldn't fish so I had to study but going down to the pond at nine o'clock in the evening three times a week you know Monday Wednesday Friday to bait up didn't interfere with studying but kept me in touch with the pond so yeah it was good.
2: Exactly
0: yeah you 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 keep you you keep your uh, eye on the ball, yeah. don't you? You know you, you're still looking for shows. You're seeing where they're moving. You're still yeah. in. It's like you're still feeling the pulse of the lake. That's that's sort of what I liken it to. Uh, and you Absolutely. get your fix as well, don't you? You get your yep, fishing. Got your me fix. fix. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, th- those honey Yucatan's. They were yeah i was using them after you obviously um but such a lovely smelling bait if ever there was one the, the originals
1: um, were the best the, the, you know mm. and the free because eventually they kept they almost became a ready mate a ready you know a shell. well they had to yeah, be they had to move they were down. yeah they became they, believe you me the, the the frozen honey yucatans were a better bait than the shelf life because of the way they were put, yeah, you know, to make oh, yeah. them roll and to sh- to preserve them, the, the the frozen honey Yucatans were a game changer for me. Game changer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I
1: used those exclusively till about 1986 when I started to make my own bait.
0: So what, how did that start for you? I mean, obviously making your own bait. I mean, me and Pete are different. We, we've done it ever since the very early days in our carp angling, but it was very different back then. Like you had to a, a lot of the time, right? So oh, yeah. <clears throat> talk talk to me about how you started first making bait.
1: Well, I have to say what it, it was again, Tim Paisley, um, you know, you, you become influenced by your peers and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd written my first, um, well, I started reading various carp magazines mm-hmm. and if you dumb it down, it was ready-made's, are not that good but if you make your own bait and you know tweak it it is a much better and that's how it was in those days ready-mades weren't great but make your own bait and it's and when I decided in 1986 I was going to spread my wings further afield in 1987 and fish um, literally the first water that had a 20 pound in it which would be the tylery I decided that because it was 20 pounders, I really needed to get me game together. I needed to start rolling my own bait. And I remember going to Trevor Moss's and I bought what I viewed would be a season of bait. And I've got it. And I know that because I've still got my Jeff, be- Jeff Kemp. Kempestini's book of bait, and I wrote yes. in the back of it, yeah, <clears throat> three, 60, three um, bags of Rod Hutchinson's protein mix. And I think inside those bags, there was enough for three 12 ounces, so it was only about 50 ounces of bait inside those. So I bought three of those bags and one 50 mil um, uh, bottle of flavour, which um, It'll come to me in a moment. Uh, what, what, uh, uh, amaretto, amaretto mm-hmm. and some sweetener and some colour. And that was the season's bait done. It was the trip to Trevor Mosses in the close season. Three bags of Rod Hutchinson's protein mix, which came in the light brown bags and a 50 ml uh, b- bottle flavour, some colour. Um, I can't remember, I sw- might have had a sweetener and that was it and that was, that was going to have to do me between June until I ran out in October <laughs> <laughs> which was, so what, 150 ounces of mix and, and I genuinely believe that would be enough so when I went fishing I would take probably a pound of bait with me for the weekend, that, that's what I used to start with and uh, you know uh, that's when my first 20 pounder came on it and it was um, the amaretto and, and the Hutch's protein mix which was absolutely fantastic
0: did you ever knock a base mix up yourself or did yours no, go no, away?
1: No, um, I, I never ever knocked, well, I, I obviously I knocked up trout pellet paste, but I never ever eight ounces of this six, yeah. in, in the early days. And um, to my embarrassment, I remember making the first mix up, I boiled it and all of a sudden it all floated in the pan. Mm-hmm. I thought there's something wrong with this, I've done something, wrong. so I throw it away, this shouldn't float, threw it away, made the <laughs> next mix up. And it floated again, and I thought, "This, this can't be right." And I started re- And it, of course, it floats when it's it's been boiled, but of course, yeah. as soon as you take it out of the sink, so I'd thrown away one of my six mixes. Um, so uh, you know, uh, but. I have to say that did catch me a lot of fish. That amaretto and the hutchy protein mix a really, really yeah. good bait. And I didn't start making my own bait then until until the Nutribates days. Really, it was um, uh, that's when I started pre-Nutribates. I started making my own bait, but it was Nutribates. It was what became Nutribates was when I started making my own bait.
0: Do you feel that there was <clears throat> more? Edges. I mean, I actually don't like that word, but you know what I mean. Everyone knows what I mean when I say edges. Do you feel there was more edges to be had with bait in that day than there is now? Oh,
1: yeah. Well, yes, but I don't think if you made your own bait today, I don't think generally you, I think there's too many people putting too much stuff in for you to have an edge. Yep. You might have an edge on a hook, but I don't think the edge will be comparable to a sharp hook and a tweet hook bait. I think making your own bait is an exercise in. It's like servicing your own car. I just, I don't think it's an edge. I really genuinely don't think it's an edge. I think making your own hook baits can be, but mm. I think making your own bait is just pointless nowadays.
0: Mm-hmm. And you feel back then that, that, that oh, it what? could be an edge, could be a real edge. Oh, I, I,
1: I remember the first year on the tilery, I did okay. And the, and then I, I'd written to Tim, and the, again, this was another landmark. I would I wrote my first carp fishing article in 1986 and I called it Who's Kidding Who? Um, and I sent it to Tim Paisley, which was about a guy who tried to claim that he'd had a 27 pounder. It was actually a 19. It's called Who's Kidding Who? And I sent it to Tim because his address appeared in Carp Fisher, 217 Cemetery Road, Sheffield. Sent it off. Um, And then I got a letter back within four or five days saying that was great. um, But rather than just send six pictures of you with a cart, Julian, is there any chance of a scenic shot or something else? (laughs) And I wrote back to him and he wrote back to me again. And um, we built up this friendship. Um, He must have, like Eric, he must have seen something in me that Eric saw in me. And I saw something in Tim that I saw in Eric and, um, we built up a bit of a friendship, um, in the, so that would be 87. So that was pre Nutribate. uh, you no, know, oh yeah, 86. Yeah. Cause the Nutribates. it would be about 86, 87. So it would be about the Nutribates era.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously you were first involved with Nutri- Nutribates before everyone else, right? Uh, sorry. Oh, yeah, you, Before yeah, yeah. any other company is what I meant.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd, um, I'd use products from other people and I didn't get my baits for, for nothing from Nutribaits. I remember going to Tim. I remember Tim saying, Oh, you need to pop over once. And we'll, um, we'll, I think he was interested in getting me involved in, because I had such a love of cart fishing and cart fishing literature. I knew as much about cart fishing literature, not as him, but as anybody he knew. And I think he saw something in me. And I, I remember catching the train to Sheffield and then getting a, a, a a taxi to Cemetery Road and um, I went to Tim's house and um, and Tim will be the first to admit in those days he lived hand to foot I remember on a number of occasions I would take him a jar of coffee and I would take him pens and paper and things like that because Tim you know prior to Cartworld he lived on vitamin tablets and rivetas he genuinely did you know he genuinely did and i remember tim talking to me about bait and stuff and i had no idea about bait and i went in his bait cupboard and there was some sbs strawberry jam ea sbs cornish ice cream ea and some bergamot and he put me a recipe together and it was using um that was the first time ever and it was prior to High Naval coming out. And it was Bengers, Davina, it was calcium calcinate, it was casein. And that was the first time I ever put a mix together. And I remember putting that mix together and it was three mils of Cornish ice cream, two mils of strawberry jam, six drops of bergamot and one level teaspoonful of Cotswold Bates, Milk B Plus or Milk B. That's the one. And I remember (laughs) making that bait And I've been using in the I've been using just and I can't even remember what I used, but I was using any old crap at the tyre at the start of the year. I remember I I went on to this Heineval uh, or this. It was the prototype Heineval. And all of a sudden I from not having I think I had one 20 pounder before. And then at the end of the year, I think I had five or six from September onwards, which in in the mid 80s. Up north was really good, and I realised how a good quality bait or a tweet bait in those days made a difference. It wouldn't now, but then using that in comparison to a ready-made, and I think it was crafty catcher, peanut pro, and when I went on to the lighter Heineval, Heine-Val prototype, it, it, it was it was another game-changer.
0: Yeah, I think the, the thing is back then, carp were, you know – I don't want to say de- deficient, but they were certainly more needing of certain things oh, yeah. for amino acids, etc. Yeah. Whereas now, I mean, there's so many different arrays of bait going in water they they're just not lacking anything. Um, oh no, it
1: was, it was vitri I use, I remember I've still, I've got all the details here. Vit- you know, it was the vitamins and minerals. You'd lose a level teaspoonful of that. You mm. had to go to, um, it wasn't Holland Barrett, but it was a hell shop, and I get the Davina Bangers and things. So literally, you made this mix up, and it was a game changer. It was a, that that combination with that flavour, that EA combination kept frozen now that was a trick you had to keep it frozen in freezer boxes because if you took it and it thought it was never as good on saturday afternoon as it was on friday but when i kept it frozen i was getting equally as many fish saturday night sunday morning as i was friday night saturday morning again that was that again that was a game changer for me yeah
0: Yeah, that i mean everyone used to take their old thermoses didn't they to to keep it all frozen and, and all intact yeah
1: yeah that, so that was that was sort of mid to late 80s well yeah no sort of 87 88 at the tiring that was prior to high coming out that was literally what high was made up of so i was i was constructing Heineval from obviously before they made Heineval commercial it was before yeah. Nutribates actually kicked off
0: yeah 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 exactly yeah and and even the flavor i mean obviously the base mix was you know very key to the success of that but that flavor combo was was classic you know a lot oh, yeah, of yeah. a lot of different baits had had similar um and even the essential oil bergamot that is still a fantastic essential oil oh, yeah. today um for the listeners that that know i test a lot of essential oils on can a good bergamot they do vary a lot but a good bergamot um essential oil although it's not used that much this day and age it is still a fantastic essential oil
1: that that was a massive that that milk bee plus and I, I never realized this but um it's not a bait i use a lot of but the nash bait citrus is literally made out of the same ingredients that milk bees made out of a lot of a lot of milk bit what was made what milk bee was made up of is used in the construction of citrus
2: yeah
0: yeah yeah keith, I sykes. Mean,
1: keith sykes of course was cotswold baits yeah and he put together a lot of the citrus for Nash, and a a lot of the citrus is based around milk B, milk B B plus.
0: Yeah. I mean, the milk B was, was actually made out of
2: house of Cotswold though, wasn't it?
1: That's right. Yeah. 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 Great bait. Oh, great bait ingredient.
2: Yeah. Did you find, sorry, did you find with, um, so with, with like the high valve coming on the scene, that it was, it was a numbers game and you were catching sort of a lot more fish. Or do you think it like back then it was really picking out the bigger fish in particular?
1: It, for me, it picked out the bigger fish. It genuinely picked out the bigger fish for me. Or I caught less smaller fish, but a lot of the fish, you know, I, I'm not saying it did. All I can say is my results showed me that when I was using the protein mix, certainly September, October, early November, I caught a lot more bigger fish. Now, that could be that they were bigger then anyway, but I, I did find that that mix definitely caught me bigger fish.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's, um sort of stands the test of time, but it makes perfect sense, you know, that the, the bigger fish are seeking out sort of like that more nutritious. It seems sort of then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: And the only time I've ever had that happen again. Was when I used Nutribate's Trigger. Now, Trigger, I, I'm very much a. If you say to me, Do you want 317s or a 23, I'll take the 317s anytime. Do you want 322s or a 31? I'll take the 22s. When I went onto Nutribate's Trigger, that caught me probably a third of many carp as I would normally expect to catch, but I caught the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. So That didn't suit me as a bait because that's not my kind of angling. So when I went to Nutribates Trigger, instead of probably catching 80 fish in here, I was catching 20, 25, but they were a lot bigger fish. you know. So that's the only time that I've ever seen was the High Nival and the Nutribates Trigger where I caught less fish, but they were definitely bigger.
2: Yes, fascinating. It is fascinating. Like you say, it's... um... Like the, the bait games, I guess, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? And the fish have seen a lot more bait nowadays. But it's certainly um, all of the all of the stories of old. And when you read the older literature now, it all sort of um, it certainly correlates. Anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: So yeah, sorry Sam, I've uh, sort of really stopped your flow.
1: <laughs> no, sorry. Well, I think we're about nineteen eighty-seven, aren't
0: we? No, not at all. It, I know it's 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 all fascinating and interesting stuff um yeah 87 i mean it, it's i mean by the way you know you you were just to backtrack actually you're saying that it was picking out the big official certainly you were catching less of the smaller ones do you i mean at, at this point you're catching 20s do you remember your oh,
1: first yeah, uh, yeah I, I, my first 20 was caught on the tylery in 1987 and the first session was completely out of the depth the second session um I caught a nineteen pound eight, and on the third third session, I caught a twenty one four, I think it was, which was my first twenty pounder. Um, so that would be nineteen eighty seven. So we're talking what thirty four years ago, um, and that was my first twenty pounder. And and you know, it was I was very lucky. It was a beautiful looking fish, but I was fishing a water, and I realised. You can only catch what's in front of you. I've been fishing waters before that only had one 20 pounder in at the right time of years. And I caught that fish probably six times up to £19.12. Yet when I went on a water which had probably got probably 20, 20 pounders in it out of maybe 60 to 80 fish, I ended up catching eight 20 pounders that year. So I realized that it's. It wasn't down to ability. You get to a certain level and then you could only catch what's in front of you. So, yeah, it, it, 18, 1987 was my first 20-pounder.
0: Amazing. Do you remember that 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 event?
1: I do, yeah. I remember I remember I was fishing on the tilery, ty- the on the tile bank. Um, it was mid-morning. I was fishing in, in what was known as the car park corner. Um, I got a run and I, I remember I was fishing – it's almost like a baby zig. So because of the weed, we would fish six foot, sorry, a six inch piece of braid straight off the lead with an ultra buoyant pop up on it and fire out boilies all around it and fish, you know, pop up off the lead as we call it. And I remember getting a run mid morning, striking, playing it. uh, And it it, it kept fighting and fighting. And it was the clear water. uh, And I've got a picture again of, One of my friends took a picture of me playing this fish and the bloke about to net it. And I saw it in the clear water. I thought, that is a considerably big fish. Um, And um, as it went in the net, I remember this bloke who was a bit older than me, uh, Jim, I can't remember his second name, but he was was one of the specimen group members. And he says, You got your first 20 there, mate. And we weighed it. And it was 21.4. And strangely enough, it was called the car park fish because it always got caught or seemed to get caught in this corner, the car park corner, which is, yeah, which was quite weird. And that was my first 20 pounder. So yeah, I remember catching that. I remember sending the picture off to Angler's Mail. I remember it going on page three of Angler's Mail. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was, it was a very pretty 20 pounder. So it, it wasn't, it didn't change my life. It, it just felt like I'd ticked something off. You know, I until probably about the late eighties, I always thought, I'll be accepted when I've caught a big fish. I'll Mm -hmm. be accepted when I've caught a 20 pounder. I'll be accepted when I've caught a 30 pounder. Um, And it was just a tick to say, I've caught a 20 pounder. Now I can go in the magazines. You know, that's what I thought.
0: It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, look, like even to me, a 20 pounder is still a big fish to me. Like it really is. And I think, you know, it's, it, you get you lost you get lose sight of that this day and age don't you i mean there's yeah. there's, there's people yeah. there's people out there catching a 20 pounder within their their first summer of of carp angling you know, which is madness but um, you've got to
1: put this into perspective if you went back to 1960 or 1970 and somebody talked about catching um a 15 pounder then people would fish yeah. all season for yeah. one bite yeah. it's just as my favorite expression ever it's just timeline, mm. and you've got to put it into perspective. And the reality is, you know, you go out now and fish for tench, you're very likely to catch a six- or a seven-pounder, whereas in the olden days, if you caught a four-pound tench, that was a good tench. No. It's just timeline. It's just mm. it's just a natural progression of things, and you just have to put it into perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah. My, my PB tench is 8.12, and, you know, when I was a kid, I would have never have thought I'd catch a tench yeah. that big in a million huge.
1: years and that's still yeah. a big tench nowadays it is i couldn't yeah. i couldn't tell you what the record barble is but people talk about getting three doubles in a session whereas at one time yeah. if you caught a double fish fugger barble, you were getting your angling times top 10 badge it's just things have moved on
0: yeah yeah it's is crazy isn't it it's absolutely crazy yeah so i mean at this point are you are you doing overnighters or are you still on days oh um
1: I'm doing overnighters as soon as I'd as soon as I'd done my exams, um, and I've I've written about this in I, recently. I can't remember what it was. Oh, I, it was for the Carp Society, and I, it was what we talked about earlier. I got a real, real love for a number of subjects. So I loved my carp fishing, but I also loved motorbikes, and um, I loved having a girlfriend. And I realised that if I went carp fishing every weekend, um, I I ended up losing girlfriends. And my mates who were motorbikers didn't want to have anything to do with me. If that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought, well, I used to watch Eric and he would catch his carp midweek overnight. And I, well, generally at night. And I'd go down and I'd um, I'd, uh, I'd see Eric and I'd spend an evening with him and go fishing every weekend. And I thought, well, why am I going down midweek um, to see Eric and not fishing? And I thought, you know what, I'll try an overnighter and the world was never the same again, <laughs> you know, so, so I started fishing overnighters. That would be my first overnighter was 1986. Um, and I fished overnighters from 1986 to 2015. I would say 90% of my carp fishing was overnighters for, for, for almost 30 years, almost wow. 30 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, and that is getting to the lake at six o'clock and packing in no later than six in the morning, going home, washing your hair, going to work. And I only stopped in 2015 because I was having to, because of promotions and I was further up the scale. I had to work at Scarborough, North Allerton. And literally you just couldn't do an overnighter and get to North Allerton for nine o'clock in the morning. So I had to then change my fishing. But for, for 29 years, it was overnighters only and you know when people people say well god you're lucky i think for 29 years i got six choices swim and i pack up when they were feeding you know and and it was hard work Mm. but that's you know that's what i
0: did i can relate i mean that that's that's all i've ever done and like you say it's when that penny drops and you're like oh shoot i can just do an overnighter and it's because you've got other things that get in the way of your fishing like you know as you said women and work and things like that you do the overnighters game changer. You know, oh, you, you, when I discovered that, you know, I was four four nights on, on the bank, you know, and, and getting up for work. I didn't wash my hair, unlike you. <laughs> I was a bit more, <laughs> bit more grubby than you, maybe. But, yeah, and it, it, it does change the world, but you're right. It's it's hard graft, isn't it? Um, well,
1: I, it was. I used to say that I would stop my overnighters in October, November, and I'd kickstart them again in sort of March, April. And that first, th- first week or two of overnighters, it was it was like going back to training it was like taking 6 months off lifting weights and then doing a proper workout and aching and the thing with overnighters is you have to get used to them. Your body gets used to them. You get back into the flow of doing it. But they hurt. They, they really. And nowadays they talk about a cheeky overnighter and it's four o'clock in the afternoon till yeah. nine in the morning. That's not yeah. an overnighter. That's luxury. Mate, that,
0: nah, that's, nah. that's
1: luxury. An overnighter is going after work. Yeah. And, you know, To me, an overnighter cannot be more than 12, 12 hours. It can't be more than, you know, because then it stretches into more than half a day
0: yeah yeah you feel like you're on a holiday don't you
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it was you, the greatest thing there, ever but it, it, it to me it was a game changer because i then could you know i i've I got all the things i could do and it's that balance the only reason i'm probably still doing it nowadays is that i didn't i didn't become obsessed you know and you know fair play to these guys who've given up everything up for cart fishing but that, that that was never me that was that was never me looking back I used to just do night after night and often it was pointless. If those fish are not coming out at night, doing three overnighters in a a week when they're not feeding at night, it's pointless. And if I look back, there were times where really I'd have been better off doing a Sunday afternoon to Monday morning than three midweek overnighters. Um, And, That's what I've taught myself now is that you go, there are feeding spells. There are times when a pond in the early season, overnighters are brilliant. And there are time at the end of the season when it's great. But I did find there was a lot of times between June and September, October, June and September, when the time to catch them was seven in the morning till 11 in the morning. And doing three overnighters just made you an idiot. You know, that's something that comes with um, age. You realise that it's not clever to do three nights. You know, it's better to do one Sunday morning or have a Monday off. So, yeah, that was that. Yes, it's 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 has its merits. And it also has it's You've got to you've got to balance it with. It's very clever. It's very, you know, it's very tough to do three overnighters, but three blank overnighters is pointless
0: yeah and i know what you mean you you you, when it you know comes to short short time angling you've got to pick your times haven't you and you've got to be aware that when they switch on um... but in the
1: 80s that that's you know i i was working and you know in in those days your job was it always has been for me it was above everything else so i was never going to get to the lake before five and i was never going to be able to leave home any later than eight o'clock in the morning so really my fishing was always good even if it was locally i i was never casting before six and i was never the rods were never later out than seven and it was more likely seven till six really so you know um it, it, it 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 was you know i was you know i was the first i don't know many other people in the Area 86 to 96 who did as many overnighters as me, you know, it was a, it was a huge advantage. Yeah. You get people do a few at the start of the season. They'd be gone by, um, they'd be gone by July.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, at this, at this time, whereabouts were you fishing? Were you still in around your, I, I, your I, area? I, I,
1: again, I'm, I've always fished locally as in, I'll give myself an hour to an hour and a quarter to get to a venue. So Tylery motorway, Drax, Uh, The Mir, uh, Tyrum Hall, anywhere um, that was up to an hour, hour and a quarter, because it had to be an overnighter. So if I could get away from work at five, I was getting to the water for six and I was not casting until seven. So, yeah, it was local. You know, I, I, I was a local angler.
2: What was your hardware like at this point, Julian? Imagine sort of like, uh, like the old nostalgic image—sort is of like a fifty-inch brolly, and you've got a oh, lounger yeah. tucked in the back of the car, which you're dragging out.
1: Uh, it was a VW. My first car was a a Ford Escort ninety. So that was my first car. I didn't get the first car till nineteen eighty-seven. It was always motorbikes or girlfriends who had who had cars. Um, so. 1987, I think, was my first car, which was a Ford Escort, 500 pounds. 1988, VW Golf Driver. So, um, hardware was a an Argus Sun Lounger, um, and it was a 50 inch uh, Wave Lock the light green ones, um, and the cheapest of sleeping bags, a pillow from my home um and that that was the hardware and that, that 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 was tough when you were doing that in September and October I don't think I got my first Fox bed chair till the late 80s you know it's certainly uh, I would imagine you know I, I did have a LaFuma, but they were so low they were great but they were so bulky as well the LaFuma chairs so it, it was tough it was tough in the 80s
2: I, I bet when those, like you say, the first fox bedchairs come out, oh, that was a game changer.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that would be certainly the, the late 80s. Um, it's, um, it, it was the late 80s. That, that was great.
2: Mm. Um, And so when was issue one of Carp World? We're talking late 80s, aren't we? 1988. Mm, and did you, what, How how did that play a part with you then?
1: Um, well, um, I was um, I was writing for Cart Fisher, and in 1987, Tim appointed me as features editor for Cart Fisher. So um, he put me in charge of contacting people to um, you know get material off them. So all of a sudden, I'm ringing Richard McDonald up, I'm ringing Rod Hutchinson up, I'm ringing Zen and Bodgeko up, I'm ringing Peter Springgate up, I'm visiting people, um, and you know so that, that that was it. And I remember Tim writing to me, and it would be probably probably the spring of 88, because I think, I think Cartwheel came out the summer of 88. And he said, you know, do you want to do um, a um, an article for this new magazine I'm starting called Cartworld? Um, and it was, um it was just basic cart fishing. I wrote that first article, I remember going into the shops and um, and seen that, that classic picture of Rod Hutchinson uh, stood in that sleeping bag with the, with the misty cover and see my, my so my article was the first article. It was the first article that ever appeared in Cartfish. So I think it was about page six. There was obviously the editorial, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But my article was the first ever article in Cartworld in 1988. So I suppose that's something to be proud of.
2: Incredibly so, that's no, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, and I know we're sort of we're discussing discussing the eighties in this episode, yeah, yeah. but um, sort of like the Carp World, and obviously that has been for I I'd say the majority of carp anglers out there, it's sort of been like the premier magazine. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Gone now, unfortunately. Um, how how sort of big a part has that sort of played on you, and how's it sort of um, the demise of Carp World? I guess with social media, how's that sort of played a part on you as well?
1: Um, well, I suppose it's the natural evolution, isn't it? It's like the death of your parents. Yeah, you know, it's not comparable, but it's it's evolution, isn't it? Um, and the thing with print media in those days, if I went to a, a you know a, I don't know a fishing water in any time between eighty nine and ninety six people would say, have you got the new edition of Cartwheel, Jules? You've you, you got the new Cartwheel? Oh, I, read your, I read your piece in Cartwheel. Because that's where you got your information from. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the world has changed. And in those days, and this is only me surmising, I think a lot of magazines had a readership of two years, maybe three, and then people would move on. But there were equally as many new readers coming through. So you would have, yes, you would have 20% of people who bought every issue, throughout the life but there was this 50 or 60 percent of people who would buy it for a year two years three years and then you know would leave it alone for a while until they you know a year on the thought oh, it's actually got better this magazine but they were being replaced and i think what happened is over the years the new you know the drop off the natural drop off of of readers has not been replaced by new readers. And, and and I've said this many a time, you could bring out a 500-page cart fishing magazine and charge three quid for it, and you wouldn't sell 20,000 copies because people would say, well, I just don't read. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how... It's like a spod. You could bring this best spod out ever and charge two quid for it, and the spod will outsell it 10 to 1 because... We've moved past spots and, you know, the market decides what it wants. And the market has decided nowadays that we don't reprint. Going to WH Smith's, there are not as many magazines as there used to be. Koran mm. doesn't exist. There used to be four bodybuilding magazines, Muscle Development. Muscle, um, there, was, there was four or five bodybuilding magazines. There is one now. And it's not that bodybuilding is less important. It's not that um, the magazines are not as good. They've never been so good. You know, pick up Carpology and Total Carp. They are wonderful magazines. They don't sell what they would sell in 1995 because they're not there anymore. And yes, it is sad to see it go. But I also look back and say from 1988 to 2018, I would say I was in 70% of them magazines.
2: Mm. Yeah, no. So, yeah, a, a
1: it's just the way of the world. It's the way of the world. You, you go and grab an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old off, off any cart Lake nowadays, he isn't going to be talking about cartwheels. He'll be talking about social media. He'll be talking about Facebook and Instagram. Oh, Facebook, that's old, old school. You've got to be on Instagram. It's just progression, mate. It's And I, I was lucky to have the golden years in the 80s and 90s.
2: I'm blessed. It's a very pragmatic way to look at it as well. it's um it's quite refreshing to hear. Um, i I don't know why I thought you would have, have, have an opposing view to that. I thought you might be sort of um sort of up more upset by it and but you're very open minded. You see, for me, I don't like change. um that's <laughs> something I've recognized myself, I think since having children and all these all these new fads and whatever. um but yeah, I think I'm quite sort of traditional to my time, as it were.
1: But I, I'm with you, mate. I, I've never read a book on a computer. I, I I'll re- I, I use Facebook for answering questions, and I'll look at stuff on Facebook. I don't ever, if, if I want to read something, I'll buy a magazine. I'll buy a book. I, I I've never read a book or a magazine, on on the on a computer. Now, you know, a full screen computer, or anything like that. That's not my thing. Mm-hmm. But I accept as a as a person who deals with the public that. There is a different world. There's a different world. And I, I still think there is a place for print media, but it's not a place where it can it can support, you know, that the magazines. There isn't the region. It's not about quality. It's not about how many people go carp fishing. It's about the way that people want to consume things. You know, and I'm sad to see Cartwell go. I used to love that drop, but I'm sad to see Sounds go. I'm sad to see Karang go. I'm sad to see, you know, motorcycle, you know, all the, it's not what it used to be, but I've moved on. You know, I can't. It's not in my garden, as I say. Don't stress about stuff that you have no control
2: over. <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. So, so back in the early days um, of Cartwell, sort of, sort of, how, how regular feature was that? How often were they put to print? It was
1: four for a year. It was four a year. So I'd, um, and I was certainly, for the majority of the early issues, it was four a year, and um, uh, certainly. In the early years, from 1988 until the 1990s, I was in quite a few issues, but I was still a developing name. I mean, when we do the 90s, we'll talk about that. I mean, as an angler, I sort of exploded in probably 1993 when Practical Cart Fishing came out. So that was my era. But certainly in the 80s, I was I was making my way. I was I was, you know, one of the people making his way through cart fishing. So, you know, I'd be in two or three, then I'd miss an issue in two or three. But I was in the CAA magazine. Um, I start I I wrote for every edition. Course Fisherman. Course Fisherman, I was in Course Fisherman every issue from 1988 to its demise in 2010. So that was, you know, that was yes. 20 to, 22 years times 12 magazines a year so you know that's that's 200 issues David Hall's magazines you know so in the 80s I started to become I was one of the people who could deliver material I enjoyed writing material I fished a variety of waters and carp there weren't that many people writing about carp fishing those days there were very few
2: Mm -hmm. and how did you take on that responsibility so you're saying you're speaking to Tim and you were in charge of sort of sourcing material
1: I loved it I loved it. I love daunting. Better, no, not at all. God, well, um, I remember, you know, all of a sudden, if somebody said to you, I don't know, whatever your sport is, if somebody says, right, you know, you're going to work for, you know, you're going to work for autosport. We want you to ring uh, Alonso up next week. We want you to pop in and we want you to view, interview Lewis Hamilton. You, you, you know... You, you're probably going to think all your Christmases have come at once. So I was a historian of cart fishing. And when Tim said, right, that's Rod's number, give him a ring. This is Richie, give him a ring. Uh, this is Peter Brock's up in Savvy. We want to have a walk round Savvy for fishing. If you go down to Peter's, um, you know, you can spend two days down there and just do a walk around carp. Fi- you know, there's no money, though. Was, I, I paid for my fuel, you know. Mm-hmm. I paid for the but I wasn't getting paid. And I remember once ringing Richie up because Richie, Richie doesn't write. And Tim said to me, with Richie, you need to ring him up, remember what he's told you, write it down, and we'll put it as though he said it. And I remember ringing Richie up And I left a message because I don't know who it was. I left a message and said, could you tell Richie? It's Julian Cundiff from Carp Tim Paisley says, can you ring him back? He just wants a few words on hook choices. And I lived at home with mum and dad. True story. I lived at home with mum and dad and my dad and me sound identical. And the phone went downstairs, I'm up in my room, because I lived at home for many, many years, and I remember my dad picking the phone up, and he because our number was Campbellsworth, 618 148. And so my dad went, 618 148. I remember my dad going, no, no. Oh, and of course, Richie thought it was me. And I think he said, all right, Julian. And my dad went, no, it's not, Julian. And I think Richie went, you fucker, I know it's fucking. You? <laughs> you know what Richie's like, if you've seen the support, every third... And my poor old dad put the phone down and I went downstairs and says, what he says, oh, I've just had a man swearing at me on the phone. I
2: thought, oh, "God, <laughs> I know.
1: And, you know, so yeah, I, I drove down to Savvy. I met Peter Brooks up in the eighties. Um, I had a walk around Savvy. I met all my heroes, Andy Little. And I realized that they were just people. They were people I looked up to and a people I respected. And I think that has changed nowadays. I gave them respect, and I always mention them now. You pick up any of my articles. People who've inspired me, I've always acknowledged from the 80s and 90s. Nowadays, I read many articles by people, and I think you would think they'd invented cartfishing fishing. They never give any nod to people who've helped them, influenced them, got them sponsorships. Um, it's all about, I did this, I did that. And that is one big change, is... In my era, you always gave a nod to those that helped you through. Whereas in the modern era, that, that's, um, there's very little acceptance. And the only time that people do accept things is they might say, Terry this and Terry that, because they want to add some sort of um, kudos to their writing. Um, they've never met Terry. They don't know Terry. But yeah, I was impressed by Tell. They wouldn't, they wouldn't know if they saw him. So yeah, that's that's a change. But yeah, I I took to it like a took like what I was, I was mixing with my icons.
2: I can believe it. Yeah, and um, like I say, there's probably not a lot of people now uh, in the in the modern age who'd probably be driving across the country uh, to get sort of snippets for articles um, for no money as well. It was it was your passion, sort of. Plus, you're meeting people who, like you were saying, were your idols. It must have been. I,
1: I, I never did it for money. I, I would travel down south. I'd meet these people. Um, you know, I remember going down to see Andy Little, and he lived in um, he lived in Old um, Old Well near Aldershot, and I, I drove down the motorway, and I'd never been that far down, and I came down the M25. Sorry, came down the M1, and it said M25. Dartford Tunnel, M25, Heathrow. I thought, well, where's the sign for Aldershot? Well, I was expecting to see a sign saying M25. I thought, Dartford Tunnel, that sounds carp-fishy-ish. So I went left and got about 30 miles down there, pulled in, then got my map out. And this was well before sat-navs. I realised I'd gone 40 miles the wrong way, turned around. So, you know, that's what it was like in those days. And it was a sense of adventure, you know, driving down to Savé. No sat then. You know, four gear golf that you know didn't like going up hills, and it, it was it was a different world. You know, it's I'm not saying it was better or worse, but I think it made me who I am today. Yeah. Did
2: you did you sort of think to yourself that you're in quite a privileged position back then, sort of doing these journeys oh, and without writing a the doubt- articles?
1: Without a doubt, I felt I was the luckiest. Remember, I'm just this Yorkshire kid. Nobody knows who Tim Paisley gave a chance to. And what Tim did is what I do. He gives people the ball and it's up to them whether they run with it or drop it. So Mm -hmm. Tim in the 80s gave me the chance to meet my icons and work with them And he trusted me because I could have been a total dick. I could have, you know, but there he said, you know, I want you to go down there. I want you to produce this. I need this in a magazine. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't go down and have a little chat. I had to produce material. I had to tape stuff. I had to take photographs. I had to pay for the developing. I had to get the stuff to Tim. You know, this wasn't. You know, most people nowadays won't get out of bed. Oh, what do you mean I'm not getting anything for this? Well, I want my petrol money. I want 200 quid. I did it for the love of carp, as the Carp Society books would say. And I think that's the reason why now, our, Tim once said to me in, a, in the 80s, every time somebody asked Tim to write, he always goes, oh, me? Oh," He says, I'm still surprised. And the same as me. Whenever he wants me to do a podcast or talk somewhere, I don't go, how much? What's it for me? Or can I sell a book? Or, and that's, you know, I'm from a different era, and the, and the '80s and '90s shaped me.
2: Yeah, right, right Well, you can see that. Um, so, was it? Are we talking sort of late '80s um, when you made your link with Nash? Uh,
1: 1989. Um, I was doing very well, and I literally got a letter on headed note paper from Kevin Nash. Hi, Jules. Um, I've been taking notice of you. You really seem to, you know, the usual, well done, and all that. Would you be interested in on coming board with Nash? Well, I was with Nutribates, um, which was fine because Nash weren't doing bait then. And um, he, he, you know, he, he took me on board. I think I, I got some gear and then we signed up with um, Diawa. And so that's when my first links with Nash came, you know, the late 80s. Uh, and I've always been a friend of Kevin. So we're talking now, what, 30, 31 years, 32 years. You know, and and that's very unusual in this business. I never thought, well, I can use Kevin to get to Fox. I can use Fox to get to Shimano. Then I can get to Ridge Monkey. Then I can get to Avid. And then, to me, I was, you know, Kevin Nash has written to me, he's given me a chance. um, And I'm, you know, I I, I respect that. So, yeah, you know, I've been with Nash um, on and off for the best part of 32 years.
2: And that, that link was purely made by... He, he's obviously seen, seen your articles and he's approached you.
1: He saw my articles, he saw what I was catching, he liked the way I wrote, he liked the way I presented myself and he felt there was a, you know, um, uh, there was a chance for me to be linked with Nash.
2: Mm. And what, what's Kevin like as a person? Because obviously we, um, we see him sort of all through like the social media era, and we've seen him sort of with his Disney's gone past. And really, because he doesn't come across like that.
1: Exactly. And that's the problem with shy people. They often, to overcome their shyness, they appear ebullient. I've always found Kevin to be straight up. I found him um, to be very loyal. Um, I found him to speak his mind. Um, I found him to be, um, he expects from you, he's a workaholic. Um, uh, I found it to be straight up and he he tells you how he feels. He'll tell you, uh, uh, I, I found it to be nothing but straight up. And there are very few people who have a criticism of Kevin, I suppose, like Danny, who've actually, well, I know a man who knows a man who knows a man who said that Kevin did this. I know a man who knows a man who knows a man that says Danny once did this to him. There are very few people who've dealt with Kevin personally that can say, You know, uh, he's done this to me. And I I can only say that I found Kevin to be straight up. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, I always judge people on how I find them. And Kevin, to me, he's a very strong character. And people either like or dislike strong characters, the same as Danny Fairbrass. Um, People either take to them or take against them. I don't like that Danny Fairbrass. Have you heard him when he says munger? So so you don't like him because he says munger. That's right. I don't like that Nashie. I saw him on a podcast and he's got his own lake. Alright, okay then. You know, so I treat people on how I find them and um, it's like a lot of people, I-, I wish I had a pound for every person that said, I thought you were right, Dick Jules, but what I met you? I thought you were all right, actually. <laughs> I say, so why did you think I was right, Dick? Well, you always seem to be right cocky. What do you mean I was right cocky? Well, you're in all the bloody magazines. <laughs> it's like, you know, what can you do? So yeah, I've I nothing but um, nothing but respect for Kevin. And if I didn't, I'd tell you.
2: Yeah, I think sort of one of one of the things about Kevin as well is um quite often. Well, I've heard so many stories about people phoning sort of like the Nash office or customer support, and he often answers the phone. Um, That's right. Which is cool, isn't it? For somebody who owns such a such a big company. Um,
1: and, and I always say this to people as well that if somebody comes up to me and says. I don't really really rate those R3 buzzers of yours, Jules. That doesn't bother me. I'll just think, okay, that's fair enough. That's your opinion. But if somebody comes up to me and says, your last book, Jules, Short Session Success, I'll go, yes, I didn't rate it at all. thought it was poor. I'm going to get very defensive about this because it's Mm -hmm. my baby. So when people slag Danny's products off and slag Kevin's products off, they're not slagging off the car he drives. They are, in effect, directing a personal criticism Mm -hmm. at him. And when he defends it, it, you know they oh what an arsehole danny fairbrass is he told me well yeah when you slagged him off yeah yeah he stood up for himself so you know um there's a lot of that but it's it's you know it's life in it you know, oh, you know for sure. We, we see it in football i hate him but as soon as he comes to play for your team you love him i hate mm-hmm. that ronaldo oh but now he plays for me so oh he's great, greatest player ever <laughs> <laughs> Same with Kevin. All these people who hate Kevin and Danny, if they rang him up and said, We'd like you on board, mate. Oh, I love Danny. I love Kevin. Best bloke ever.
2: <laughs> yeah, very, very sad and very, very true.
1: It's um, life, mate. I, I remember catching 2020s from up here in the in the 90s. Now that was good going on overnight. As I remember this bloke saying to me, Yeah, but it's not like you've had 2020s from Yately. And I thought why do they value, you know, and, and, and I've never attached any, any uh, what they matter to me is all that matters. What somebody else might think about my carp genuinely has no mm-hmm. impact on me whatsoever. So the waters I fished were the waters that I enjoyed fishing. So, you know, uh, you get all these people who used to knock me for fishing Yorkshire waters. But they would only fish their, their local waters. So if you live in Yateley and you fish all the, le- the, the waters within 30 miles of Yateley, you're lucky because you happen to fish a productive area. I fished all the waters within 30 miles of me. You know, the fact that you live in Yateley and I live in Campbellsworth or Selby, that's just the way of the world. Your carp don't matter any more or any less than my carp mm-hmm. at all.
2: Yeah, I can resonate with that, living down in Cornwall.
1: I yeah, am. Absolutely.
2: Not blessed with um with yeah. many big fish, but there's certainly a few special fish knocking around. Um plenty for me to go at anyway. So are you still there, Sam?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I've just been listening to you guys and uh enjoying my beers and I've uh, I'm feeling them, I'll be honest. Bet they've gone to my head. Um there's loads of different kind of offshoots I wanna go down from what you've said. Um obviously I wanna be respectful of your of your time as well. Um now we you know, without you don't have to answer this. I can edit this out if need be, and, Not and at without all, no. I
1: ain't got a problem answering anything.
0: No. You know, without trying to stir the pot or anything like that. I mean, obviously, you were you were firmly with Nutribates for a, a considerable amount of time. Y- your time ended with those. How are you able to tell us how that came about? What happens?
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was with Nutribates from nineteen eighty eight to was it two thousand and twelve, whatever. And I remember that um, Nutribates. Um, in my opinion it had lost its way and I think the nutriates would admit they lost their way and they were not in a position to produce bait for me and I felt that I'd been a very loyal servant to them I'd turned down a lot of a lot of money over the years because I felt that Nutribates gave me my chance and I stuck with Nutribates. Yeah. I remember I, I contacted one of the guys from Nutribates. I told him what I needed, and I wasn't having hundreds of kilos of bait, and they said they couldn't get me that, and I would have to have – they would produce me my bait for free, but i have to pay to have it rolled. And I remember clearly saying, the day I pay for rolling, having my bait rolled when I've done this – is the day I won't be with you anymore, and I simply um, I ended my association with Nutribates. Um, I'm still friends with the guys from Nutribates, um, and I signed up with Nash Baits. It wasn't me saying their bait's better than yours. It wasn't me falling out with anybody, and I, you know, I, I keep the correspondence. I'm always very careful. They simply said I would have to pay. To have my baits rolled, and when you've been with the company from nineteen eighty eight to for the best part of twenty odd years, and I would say I, I certainly was a bit—I <laughs> certainly publicised the bait well. I felt it was time to move on, and, and that's the truth. I don't have a problem saying it.
0: Oh, you, you were with them for a very long time, so I mean it's understandable you'd feel like that. And you're right. I mean, I used to use a lot of NutraBait stuff, yeah. um, and it, it, it things changed. They, they, they did change, you know, um, certainly around that time. I think you said 2012. 2000. Um, I think
1: it was about 2012. Yeah. And, and yeah. I was told that I would have to pay to have my bait rolled. And, um, you know, uh, and I said I, I wasn't prepared to do that. Yeah, And I think I have every right to say that. I'm afraid yeah. if, if Kevin Nash said to me, you know, we, we'll, um, you know, we can give you bait jewels, but you're going to have to pay trade. I would say, Whoa. and I don't think Kevin would do that, you know, and I'm very loyal and I don't, th- you will not find a firm that will ever say to you, Julian Cundiff left us because he got a better offer elsewhere. You, yeah. you, And I, I, you will not find one firm. And this is over a career of 35 years that will tell you that now to me, that says a lot about me, you know, And I'm not sure that there's that many people that could say that they Mm. would say, well, we're in it for business. And that's what it's our, our, it was never my wage. I was put loyalty before cash.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You went straight to Nash, didn't you? Uh,
1: Kevin had Kevin wanted me on board for the last um, oh, certainly for 10 years. And and I have ultimate respect for Kevin. He could well have said to me, sorry, Jules, you can't be Nash Tackle and Nutribates." Mm. But he said, Jules, I respect you. I think you're making the wrong decision because obviously Kevin believed that Nash bait were better than Nutribates, as he would. He says, but I respect the fact of your loyalty and you're the only, I won't use the word he said, beep, 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 that <laughs> I would allow to have Nash Tackle and neutral baits and he respected me for that
0: it was pretty So yeah
1: that's why i have a lot of respect for kevin because kevin could well have said jules it's one or the other goodbye because there are companies that would say that you're right with the wrong bait manufacturer to fit into our program so i would say that that's the reason i respect kevin because he never ever said to me you have to go you have to go mate and um there are not many people that i could say that about I would like to say that I was the face of NutriBaits or one of the faces of NutriBaits for a long, long time. Um, I kept my mouth shut. You will not find me ever say, well, Nash Bait is better than NutriBaits. And you'll Mm. find that when I do a throwback Thursday and it's from 19, somewhere between 87 and 2010, I don't forget which bait i caught it on. I will say I caught on this. And I see a lot of throwback Thursdays where the bait gets forgotten about, the yeah. tackle gets forgotten about. And it's, it's, um, it, I, I'm always honest about what I used. I put pictures of Daiwa Sensitrons up. I have put pictures of my Fox buzzers up or I, I you know, all the NutriMax boilies. Yeah. I've always tried to be fair, um, you know, and, and, and that's the way it is. And I, yeah, I'm sure I've made mistakes, but I would like to say that from the eighties, when I was given a chance, I'd like to say the eighties, um maybe who I am today because I was given the chance and I, I, I wouldn't be able to look at Bill Cotton, Kevin Nash, Tim Paisley or any of those people in the face knowing that I'd let them down. You know, they may think I have but as long as I don't believe I'm, I'm happy about it.
0: You weren't wanting to switch t-shirts then? You didn't have a, st- <laughs> a stack of different t-shirts up for your photos with the fish?
1: I know, you know, I, I use what I was confident in. Yeah. Bill gave me the ch- bill, and Bill and we've well, got to remember in those days it was Bill and Tim, yeah, and then it was Bill and let me think, it was Bill and Brian Garner, and then it was Bill and Richard, and then it was Bill. So, you know, and it's obviously different people. Uh, they gave me my chance, and I would like to say I repaid them tenfold.
0: I'm sure you did 100% um i mean that that is the 80s summed up for you is there anything that we've skipped over is there anything that you think we should cover from the 80s before we run i I
1: think that's i think the 80s was a great lead into the 90s the 90s is what many people probably of your demographic will know more about you know the practical cart fishing the successful cart fishing the bk guide to cart rigs the angling times the cart world the big cart the you know, all those advanced cartfish So yeah, yeah, that, that was, as I say, without the eighties, there wouldn't have been the nineties. I don't think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Julian, I cannot wait to get you on for episode two. Um, to talk about all. the nineties. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone will be looking forward to that as well. Thank you so Fantastic. much for coming on. It's been no an absolute pleasure all. and I look forward to chatting to you soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, guys.
2: Right. Thank you, Julian.
1: Cheers, mate.